Hello listener, Gould here. This is just your friendly reminder to check this week's show notes for spoiler and content warnings. Enjoy this week's episode. And welcome to The Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where each week we discuss and review a film based on a link to the previous movie. I'm Ed Howells, and I'm joined by my co-host, Madeline Gould. Hi, Ed. Gould, how the heck are you, and what the devil have you been watching this week? Um, well, um, first things first, you're not allowed to make me laugh because I've got a really bad cough. And if you make me laugh... <coughs> I think we might run into trouble if you're not allowed to laugh while we're talking about the movie that we're talking about today. It's, it's Yeah, um, it's a problem. Um, yeah, I'm absolutely... Filled with cold, but um, filled with high spirits, so that's good. Um, what have I been watching this week? Um, I've had a really lovely um, time watching things this week. I started off um, with Orphan First Kill. Oh, I've heard of that. Yes. When my husband is away, I get to watch horror movies. So um, I watched, uh, I've watched. i been wanting to watch Orphan First Kill for ages, having heard rave stuff about it. Um, and I hadn't seen Orphan. I can confirm if you watch Orphan First Kill, it probably spoils Orphan. So you have to watch <laughs> it in the right order. Uh, but it's great fun. Really good. I like, highly recommend it. Was it was um, it was an absolute hoot. Really twisty, turny, and Julia Stiles doing some really excellent work. And excellent. Um, personal favourite actor of mine, Rossif Sutherland, who is Kiefer Sutherland's brother. Sure. And I know him because he played. I mean, to our listeners, anyone who is into this series as much as I am, please get in touch because I'd love to be your friend. Um, there's a series <laughs> called Rain. Have you heard okay. of this? I don't know. Rain, like, as no. in to to rule over something. Rain. Oh yes, I think you've told me about it before. Yeah, it's it's absolutely sublime bullshit. It's so <laughs> dreadful. I love it with all my heart. And Rossif Sutherland. So it, the it's about Mary Queen of Scots. Mm-hmm. But if you can imagine it, Rossif Sutherland's character is Nostradamus. <laughs> so uh, it's good. Just to give you a vague idea, I mean, honestly, if you want to watch some nonsense, it's it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. And then watched Night of the Hunter, which is just a masterpiece. Yes. Oh my god, I just want to. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. And then I went to the cinema to see Bo is Afraid. Excellent. Did um, you go in the I end? Did not go because, to be honest, the sun was shining when yeah, I was going yeah. to go, and I honestly could not face three hours <laughs> in the dark no. with my head melting Um, um, I'm going tomorrow by the way oh okay yeah I'm gonna go sit the the electric it isn't head melty okay nor is it hard work okay which is something we uh, uh, have discussed however let's wait till next week to have a Hmm. proper discussion about what we think I don't want to spoil anything for you by giving you any further opinions but I would I would I would say I didn't I didn't find it hard work in the way that we were discussing with David Lynch okay it's not hard work in that way and you know Joaquin Phoenix is great really good in it 
I do like Joaquin Phoenix. He's, and he's and really Nathan good. Lane's in it as well, isn't he? I like Nathan he's Lane. He's just so great. Oh, God. He's just... He, I love Nathan Lane. I think yeah, everyone's doing fantastic work in it. Yeah, it's got a nice cast. Lovely cast. Uh, after I finished my screening, I'd made a tit of myself because as I'd walked into the cinema, we'd done that extremely British polite thing of someone mm. trying to hold open the door for me and be polite because I had popcorn. And uh. then we got a bit confused and bumbled up and I was a bit odd and then I spilled popcorn all over the floor. And but so we then became friends, of course, because you do in the times of adversity like spilling your popcorn, <laughs> you you make friends. But um you do. and I, I really, really wanted to go up to them and go, can we I know that we don't know each other apart from the popcorn fiasco fiasco, but can we just have a conversation about this film, please? Because I came alone and I don't have anyone to talk to about it and I need to discuss it with someone. Um, but they they left really quickly. Whereas I um oh I, what I will tell you hmm. because I want to save you some time potential time. Uh-huh. There, there is not a post-credit sting. Okay, good. Because you might be tempted to wait and it and don't because there is nothing. <laughs> and it doesn't happen. Okay. There we go. Um, I, honestly, I, I'm, I'm, I've, I just want to talk to as many people as possible about this film. So please, to our listeners, get in touch with us and let's chat about Bo's Afraid because I'm, I'm very intrigued. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe at some point we'll do uh, do a bit of an episode on Bo is Afraid. Shall we? Yeah, a little bonus episode quite... or something, perhaps. A little bonus one that yeah. might be quite good fun, actually. And then, yeah, I watched the film we're watching this week. So, what about you, Ed? You've been on the road, I think. So, uh, you're yeah, I have. Um, yeah, I've been doing shows, but I, uh, yeah. So, I've not been to the cinema this week. I did fit in a trip to the theatre. Went to see The Ocean at the End of the Lane. What did you think? Uh, yeah, I, I broadly enjoyed it. I think the, the staging is. Splendid. Yeah, it's a marvel to look at. It's um, gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. Some of the performances I found grated, and I don't know if it's just me and an inability to follow narrative, but I I did get lost from time to time, which I thought was strange in a, what is ostensibly a family show. But that that yeah. could have just been my inherent failings. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> I. I, I I, I I enjoyed it. I had a lovely evening at the theatre. Yeah, and actually, it's... there's some really great stuff. Oh, absolutely! It struck me slightly as a show that probably should have been seventy minutes straight through, but they mm. had to eke it out a bit to get an interval in. So mm. some of the big movement sequences just go on a bit too long. Yeah, in my opinion, the first half's about an hour and a quarter, I think. And when the interval came. I said to Jim, yeah, they could have lost 20 minutes at the start of that. I, yeah. I didn't need a lot of the world building stuff. Once the narrative kicks in, I was into it. But... Unfortunately, because actually I think they're probably three of the most interesting characters, mm. but I wasn't keen on the kind of maiden mother crone um, mm-hmm. unit um, in the farmhouse with their sort of ropey um, West Country accents. Yeah. And it, I just found that a bit irritating, actually. Yeah, um, the whole way that that was dealt with. But as soon as Charlie Brooks rocked up as um, <laughs> as the woman, I just honestly, I just wanted her to be on stage yeah. at all times. I thought she was fucking great. Yeah. All those really Loved cool her. magic tricks, all that misdirection with the double yeah. um, towards the end of the first half, I thought was great. I, like, yeah. It's more of that. Uh, yeah, more, more, more. It's so great. And the puppetry work is really great. Although, and the, But then there were a couple of bits, you know, the kind of, um, I don't know what they were, the sort of bird things. Yeah, I can't remember um, what they 
They were a bit. They got really good, Mm -hmm. but when they first started, it felt a little bit GCSE drama, Um, (laughs) and me and my sister got a little bit giggly um, when we were watching it. But like on the whole, yeah, I really enjoyed. I loved the you know the um, underwater section where they were little puppets with light. Yes, that was so. That was gorgeous. Yeah, really gorgeous. Really, really gorgeous. Actually, I I really liked a lot of the sort of choral dance work. I liked. Yeah. How how that developed through the show because the the first half hour or so there were just people who would come on and move bits of set and props around. Yeah, yeah. Um, to set the scene and just gradually and there's there was a moment when they'd moved some stuff around and they were leaving, and the dad sort of stops and comes back to pick up a letter and they stop and come back into the scene and it it suddenly the relationship changed and their yeah. role their function in the drama changed and they suddenly took on a more uh, sort of choral quality from there and their role grew and grew and grew as it went on that was i think yeah. one of the more ingenious bits of the staging actually i really enjoyed that bit as well it 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 was playful which yes. it needed to be for the type of show it was i know that you were saying that you were uh, just really hoping to go and see some something at the theater that you liked <laughs> so yes yes and i and i did Broadly so, speaking, yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I, I left, I left happy. Yeah, I left in a good mood. Uh, I've, all, I have watched uh, one film this week. Yeah, that was uh, Richard Awardy's Submarine. Oh, it's love. Did you like it? Yeah, I really liked it. I'd never seen it before. I really, yeah. really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I watched that on my laptop on the train down to London. I, I, I wish I didn't relate so hard to the boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh God. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, Paddy Considine as the psychic ninja. <laughs> I've forgotten about him. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Yeah, he's Absolutely great. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's got a banging soundtrack as well by Alex Turner from um, Arctic Monkeys. It, yeah. It's so good. It is. It's really, really great. Yeah. yeah. So, and uh, and yeah. of course, you've watched uh, the film that we're watching this week. So. I have indeed. In what form did you watch it? Was it a laptop watch or a real telly watch? Or a... um, uh, I watched it on the big telly at home before I went down to London. And then when I got down there, I watched it again on my laptop in the spare room at my mum's. I didn't watch it twice. No, when I started watching it the second time, I was like, I wish I'd taken notes the first time. Um... (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this week we're talking about uh, Dick Tracy from 1990. Yeah, do you want to do a, a plot synopsis? Yeah, sure. I've not prepared one. I'm just going to see what comes out of my brain. See what comes out of your brain. Okay. So, it's an hour and 45, which means you have 105 seconds. 105 seconds, okay. So, three, two, one, go. Dick Tracy is a detective. His bosses are trying to put him behind the desk and make him chief of police. But he doesn't want to do that. He wants to be on the street fighting the organised crime. Um, and he has a girlfriend who is a gardener or maybe cultivates plants. She has a very large greenhouse, um, but he won't marry her because he's Dick Tracy. And um, Big Boy Caprice is the head honcho of all the organised crime. And he's trying to kind of unite all of the different factions of the organised crime in the city under him. So he is in charge of everything. And... Uh, Warren Beatty as Dick Tracy wants to take him down and uh, the only witness to a lot of Big Boy Caprice's uh, crimes is Breathless Mahoney played by Madonna who is a singer who is also playing she is also trying to take over by pretending to be a man with no face (laughs) there you go that's it that's it 
<laughs> 65 seconds. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Did I miss anything important? Uh, oh, there's a child. There's yeah, a child. There's say, an important child. A, a sort a... of important child. Well, so, yeah, Dick Tracy um, rescues this child from this abusive older person who's living in a shack. Mm-hmm. who's getting him to pickpocket um, mm-hmm. and then kind of doesn't want him to go to the orphanage but doesn't want to adopt him so they just sort of hang out yeah. and then they sort of become partners pretty much yeah and he buys him he buys him some very red clothes and dyes his hair red for some reason um, and the child eats a lot of food and is the child from Hook and he's very good yes the I child like is very from Hook yeah I think, I think I think there's some splendid performances in this movie yeah. uh, there's some really nice performances um, and there are some thoroughly bonkers performances, um, um, and there the majority of the performances we we won't know if they're good because they're covered by so much prosthetic. So much prosthetic. There's basically no point. They might as well have a load of mops with headshots on. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm giving away too much of my opinion about the film before we get into it. Well, yeah, shall I do a bit of housekeeping? Let's do a bit yeah, of housekeeping. On. Yeah, first. yeah. Okay. Round it up for us. So, um, so I think. The first thing to say about this is Disney produced it and they essentially wanted a big comic book blockbuster to rival Tim Burton's Batman that had taken all the money. And so they took on Warren Beatty to direct and star in Dick Tracy. Uh, Dick Tracy, the sort of hard-boiled detective character created in the 30s by Chester Gould and sort of lived in a uh, sort of very over-the-top gangster-themed noir-y kind of comic strip for a very long time. Disney sort of threw everything at it. So big all-star team, really. Uh, The writers they took on, Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., that was the writing team that had had massive success with Top Gun. They uh, followed Top Gun up with Turner and Hooch, which was also a pretty big success. After this, it sort of tailed off a bit. They had some success with Anaconda in the 90s. And somewhat less success with the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, Mm. which is the sequel to the uh, John Goodman, Rick Moranis hit, um, starring (laughs) starring Mark Addy as Fred Flintstone and Stephen Baldwin as Barney Rubble. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, you've got your own dear face on. (laughs) I I, I haven't seen it, I have to say. To my shame, I've seen the John Goodman one. Yeah, you know what? I have caught bits of Viva Rock Vegas on ITV 78 whichever ITV it was on. Yeah. Um, So as I say, they threw a lot at it. They hired Danny Elfman to do the score, basically to do the exact same job that he did on uh, Batman, but with a slightly more sort of Gershwin kind of inflection, I would say. Yeah, just to sort of talk a little bit about Danny Danny Elfman for a moment. Obviously, we we met him last week talking about Beetlejuice. Uh, I just wanted to, because his CV is so extensive, I wanted to just touch on a couple of highlights outside of the obvious sort of Tim Burton collaborations. So other movies that Danny Elfman scored include, uh, certainly not limited to, uh, Scrooged, Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, and of course, he provided the theme tune for The Simpsons. Oh my God, of course he did. I always forget that. Also on the music front, they got Stephen Sondheim in to provide some original songs, which, yeah, he won one of the Oscars, this one. Yeah. Obviously, for anybody who doesn't know Stephen Sondheim, huge in the world of musical theatre. He was the lyricist for West Side Story, um, but he's also uh, wrote the music and the lyrics to things like Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods. Uh, He was the lyricist for Gypsy. Enormous figure, a towering figure in the world of musical theatre. Yeah, so again, all-star crew. uh, DOP on this was Vittorio Stataro. 
who had been the uh, DOP on Apocalypse Now and Last Tango in Paris. Uh, the editor, Richard Marks, who was the editor on Serpico, Godfather Part 2, Terms of Endearment, also Apocalypse Now. Uh, production designer, Richard Silbert, or Silbert, yeah, I think Richard Silbert, uh, who worked a lot with Polanski, so he was production designer on Rosemary's Baby in Chinatown, uh, also did Breathless, um, Went on to do Carlito's Way. The art director, Harold Michelson, was the art director on Spaceballs, Planes, Trains and Automobiles and Terms of Endearment. Uh, So a little crossover with the editor Richard Marks on Terms of Endearment there. He also worked with Richard Silbert, so that sort of production design team of Richard Silbert and Harold Michelson, or Michelson, uh, worked together on Mike Nichols' Catch-22. The set decorator was Rick Simpson, uh, who also worked with Richard Silbert on Tequila Sunrise, uh, which, have you seen Tequila Sunrise? I haven't, no. Oh, I think you'd enjoy Tequila Sunrise. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, Do you know, I've uh, not even heard of it. What is, what is it? It's uh, 1988 it was directed. It's Mel Gibson, Michelle Pfeiffer and Kurt Russell. Yeah, I've got a little synopsis here. The IMDb synopsis for it is a former LA drug dealer tries to go straight, but his past and his underworld connections bring him into the focus of the DEA, the Mexican feds and the Mexican drug cartels. Um, it's Ooh. a sort of 80s noiry type bit of business. I think, I think you'd have a good time. Yeah, great. The costume designer on Dick Tracy, we should make special note of because she's had an incredible career. Uh, That's Milena Cannonero. Uh, So she started off uh, working with Stanley Kubrick. Uh, So she was costume designer on Clockwork Orange and The Shining. Uh, She won an Oscar for her design on Barry Lyndon. Um, And in more recent years, she is uh, one of Wes Anderson's go-to costume designers. So she Uh designed... Uh, the costumes for Life Aquatic with Steve C. Sue, uh, the costumes for uh, the Darjeeling Limited, uh, which, side note, is my favourite Wes Anderson. It's my favourite Wes Anderson too, Ed. Oh, how lovely. Um, yeah, it's great. It is, yeah. I really, really like We'll discuss that at another time. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was also a costume designer on Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, French Dispatch, and the forthcoming Asteroid City, which I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to as well. It looks great. And finally, as far as the crew is concerned, we've got the makeup team, uh, the Oscar-winning makeup team, which is headed by John Caglioni Jr. and Doug Drexler. So Doug Drexler done makeup on Manhunter, uh, Poltergeist 3, and Three Men and Little Lady. Presumably, the he did the uh, special character makeup for Ted Danson at the end when he pulls off the prosthetics that he's wearing as a vicar uh, to reveal himself. Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. I do love that movie. Sure. I've not seen it. You've not seen Three Men and Little Lady? It's, no, I, I mean it's it's not good, but I love it. Great, okay. Um, uh, do you know is it um is it what's his face? It's um, Mustache Man. Yeah, Tom Selleck, uh, Ted Danson, and I want to say Billy Crystal, but it's not Billy Crystal. It's um the guy from Police Academy, Steve Gutenberg. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the other guy heading up the makeup department, John Caglioni Jr. Um, at this point, he'd worked in the team with Doug Drexler on Manhunter. Um, he also was the makeup guy on one of my favourite creature features, Basket Case. Ooh, I love Basket Case. Yeah. Uh, he worked with Michael Mann on Heat. So, uh, yeah, two Michael Mann projects there. And he went on to be uh, Heath Ledger's makeup artist on The Dark Knight. Ooh. So he helped Heath Ledger create that incredible Joker yeah. makeup that I think we can agree is iconic. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. In cinema now. I'd like to talk a little bit about Warren Beatty because I'm sort of yeah. fascinated. I didn't realise. So I feel like, like Warren Beatty, obviously... 
huge career, really long, long career. He's in his 80s now. How many acting credits would you think he would have in that time? Unfortunately, I've recently looked at his IMDb, so Ah. I'm vaguely aware. But you'd expect him to have like 200 odd acting credits. Yeah, you'd you'd expect him to be in, in three figures at least. Yeah, 36. 36 acting credits. That's just so odd, but isn't it? But fascinatingly, he's a real all-rounder. Mm. So since his early days, he straddled all the roles involved in putting a film together. He produces and stars. He's written, he's directed. Uh, so he produced and starred in Bonnie and Clyde, which was, I th- was for me, that was that was my first sort of encounter with Warren Beatty, yeah. I think. Um, he, yeah, he produced, directed and starred in uh, Heaven Can Wait and a film called Reds, which uh, I've not seen either of those. Well, Heaven Can Wait is a remake of the Heaven Can Wait that I really didn't enjoy last week. Oh, it's a remake of it, is it? I it's wasn't a remake, sure. yeah, yeah. Right. And it's um, Julie Christie and they were in a relationship at the time. Yeah, she, well, he, he worked again with Julie Christie in in Shampoo, uh, which yes. he wrote and starred in, um, also featuring Goldie Horn. So he's sort of a real all-round, I want to be involved in every aspect of this kind of guy, which I, I think people like that are absolutely fascinating. They are fascinating. Like, I would argue that it isn't a good thing, but Warren Beatty, he's a really important figure because, I mean, he was one of many who had this kind of auteur thing going on. Um, his involvement with making Bonnie and Clyde mm-hmm. meant that he was was an extremely important figure in the rise of what they call new Hollywood as sure. opposed to old Hollywood. Old Hollywood being characterised by the studio system, which yeah. is where, you know, the studios are the ones saying, that kind of dictating the artistic vision of uh, of the pictures. Whereas uh, in new Hollywood, was the focus was much more on directors. And Bonnie and Clyde is the film that is sort of cited as the kind of beginning of new Hollywood. So it's a really important film and obviously him as producer really important figure he's 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 a fascinating guy mm, well absolutely. it was as well he had kind of come up with a concept for an adaptation of dick tracy in 1975 so that's how long it took to get the film made and in that time kind of he, you know he had an idea for it but he kind of hopped on and off um, yeah. in terms of his his involvement and it went f- it was originally with paramount pictures and it, it sort of hopped over to disney mm. it went through loads of different drafts of the script all of which were terrible apparently <laughs> and this was this was from the writers of the comic strip who then who then obviously had an input into the script yeah. uh, one of them a chap called max allen collins read one of the scripts and he said it was terrible. The only positive thing about it was a 30s setting and lots of great villains, but the story was paper thin and it was uncomfortably campy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was. It went all over the place. Loads of different casting options, loads of different directors. Like they approached um, Spielberg to direct yeah. it. It seems to be that the people they wanted, mm-hmm. they couldn't afford. And the people who wanted to do it, they didn't want. Yeah. So it's a really weird... The production history is really choppy-changey, which I'm sure is the case for a lot of stuff. I think it's sort of renowned that it had a sort of troubled development. Yeah. Yeah, so having gone through that sort of all-star crew, the cast uh, is equally extraordinary. The people who show up, it's insane. Um so we've got Warren Beatty in the lead as Dick Tracy, 
uh, Charlie Cosmo, as we touched on a moment ago, from who would go on to do Hook. Uh, he plays the kid, who uh, later chooses his own name of Dick Tracy Jr. We've got Glenn Headley as Tess Trueheart, Madonna as Breathless Mahoney, and Al Pacino as Big Boy Caprice. A sort of level down from there, we've got just a, a mad supporting cast. Um, we've got Dick Van Dyke as D.A. Fletcher, Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles, who, for me, Mumbles provides really all the laughs that the film has to give. Yeah, and I, even his scenes go on a bit too long. They do. It's like, yeah. I get it, he mumbles. Um, Mandy Patinkin, who I, I'm always astounded how different he can look between roles. Oh my God, like, he's Just off the back of Princess Bride to this as 88 Keys. I don't, I mean, I presume there's some prosthetics on him, but not as noticeably as there is on other people. I don't know that there is. Um, Paul Salvino shows up as Lips Manless, who has a horrible end. William Forsyth as Flattop. James Kahn shows up as Spaldoni. Um, interestingly, yeah, sort of little Easter egg. They've done James Kahn up to sort of emulate the look of Vita Corleone. Uh, Cole Meany shows up as a random cop. Catherine O'Hara, blinking you miss her. Yeah. Um, is there as a character called Texie Garcia? You never hear her name in the film. I'm fairly no, sure. No, no, no. Um, um, ca- luckily, though, there are so few women in the film that you can cast your mind back to the moments you've seen a woman and it's work true. out who she is by who default. Is, yeah. Um, and yeah, Kathy Bates as Mrs. Green, uh, the stenographer. Is, or, is, stenographer is she a stenographer? Yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. Isn't it incredible that in this year, same mm-hmm. year, 1990, she was in Dick Tracy. Uh, and again, you know, could have been replaced by a houseplant. Um, <laughs> so thin is her character. Uh, and also won an, won an Academy Award for Misery. Yep. You know? Yeah. And James Kahn as well in Misery. How lovely yeah, is that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, sure, they both picked up handsome paychecks for their work on Dick Tracy. Well, probably, you know, the amount of time they spent actually doing their acting job, they probably spent three times that in makeup well probably not kathy bates but possibly james can yeah this is something i really we'll talk about later ed but i Mm. really want to i'd like to try and dig down into how they chose which characters had prosthetics and which didn't Um, because it doesn't seem consistent to me yeah i was thinking about this because i don't think you could make this film in this way today no for the simple reason that by and large with very few exceptions those who have the grotesque prosthetics are crooks yeah well yeah we've got that thing where disfigurement equals baddie i think there are a couple of a couple of exceptions i think there's a reporter early early on who's got a false nose on um, yeah but i don't think we've got any reason to suspect that he's a wrong one. um but other than that some I of don't the remember. cops uh, some, some of the, of the cops. Co- some of the other cops have got some prosthetics on as well have they maybe they're crooked too <sighs> depressingly i don't know i think oh yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to be generous and say that they were trying to make sure it wasn't just baddies who had facial disfigurements. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, would you like to try and guess who some of the alternative casting was? I think I might have. I think I might have come across who some of have the alternatives for, of for Dick were. Yeah, they saw a lot. Like George Clooney was he one? Oh, um, I didn't haven't seen that, but yeah, I, I maybe I'm misremembering totally... then. So yeah, please hit me with them. I mean, bearing in mind that um, Warren Beatty, it was criticised for Warren Beatty being too old to play this character. Interesting. The two kind of front runners were Warren Beatty and Clint Eastwood, but they also uh, Harrison Ford, Richard Gere. 
Tom Selleck and Mel Gibson were all up for the role of Dick Tracy. Uh, well, they were considered. I don't know whether any of them actually wanted to do it. Yeah. Any of them would have been good. Yeah, Har- Harrison Ford would, would be, uh, particularly, I guess, at that time... Harrison yeah. Ford would have been at the top of their wish list, I would have thought. I think I think all of them would have been good. I don't like Warren Beatty. Well, no, it's not that I don't like him. He mm. just has... He's such a non-entity in this he, He's Yeah, he's a bit he's of a so charisma vacuum, isn't he? He's, he is. Yeah, which is kind of sad. Have you got any other alternative castings for any other uh, characters? Yeah, so um, Breathless Mahoney is the, the main one. Um, obviously, the part eventually went to Madonna, but the actresses who they really wanted but were too expensive were Michelle Pfeiffer, Kathleen Turner, and mm-hmm. Kim Basinger. There are sure. so many points in this where it comes up and it's like, you're just trying to do Batman again. Yeah. And Kim Basinger obviously is in there because she just appeared in Batman. Yeah, I don't, I can't particularly see, how much you maybe Michelle Pfeiffer? I don't know. Yeah, anyway. I, th- I think they, either Michelle Pfeiffer or Kathleen Turner would have been great. I, I can I, see why I love neither Kathleen of them would have wanted to do it though. Oh yeah, for sure. Apparently yeah. also, um, Madonna wanted the part so badly that she worked... Now, I don't know entirely what this means. It says here, worked for scale. Yes, I I have looked that up before, but I can't remember what it means. Warren Beatty's paycheck for this was $7 million. Right. She got $35,000 oh, for wow. doing this. Um, mm. So, it, yeah, in, interesting. And I know that quite a big part of the casting of Madonna was because it it was kind of cashing in on her fame. Mm-hmm. She was kind of at peak Madonna. And also just the the kind of like um, the tie-in thing, like she did a tie-in album and mm-hmm. marketed the film as part of her tour. It just feels a bit kind of commercial and icky. Again, sort of with the tie-in album, trying to emulate the success of Prince's Batman soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I um, think at every turn it tries to emulate Batman and kind of falls flat yeah okay yeah i feel it's a little it's a bit of kind of um do i mean stunt casting at the same time i mean well she's very good i think she's great in it yeah, yeah she's really good when you consider how derided madonna has been from for some of her forays into acting she's well, real I good think... in this so just to wrap up the housekeeping it received seven oscar nominations uh it won three so one for uh, makeup it won for the art direction and set decoration and it won for the original song the other categories that it uh, was nominated in were uh, Supporting Actor for Al Pacino, which you've got a very cross face on right now. I'm, I'm shaking my head. <laughs> Sorry. We'll, we'll come on to that momentarily. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was also nominated for the cinematography, uh, for the costume design and for the sound design. Would you like to know what it was up against in the makeup stakes? I think that's the most I would love to, category. yes. Was this the awards in 91 or the awards in 1990? Uh, so the 63rd Academy Awards took place on March 25th, 1991. So there are only three films nominated in the Best Makeup category. This film, Dick Tracy. Um, it was also up against Serrano de Bergerac and okay. Edward Scissorhands. Ah. Which, of course... Edward Scissorhands, the makeup was uh, done by V. Neal and Stan Winston. And, of course, it was V. Neal who got us from Beetlejuice to here. Yeah. For she provided Al Pacino with his makeup. Just before we come on to Al Pacino, which I think might be an interesting place to start, the budget was $46 million, uh, although it said that they spent $100 million overall to produce, market and distribute the movie. It took $162.7 million. So it was a financial success, but it wasn't the level of financial success that 
they wanted. Uh, and no. Consequently, no sequel was produced. Although Warren Beatty has said several times that he's going to make another one. Yeah. Um, do you know there is a world in which I, like, I would quite happily if 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 a whole other team of people did a Dick Tracy film that was completely separate from this, yeah, I'd be intrigued because I love all of that kind of hard-boiled noir detective stuff, mm-hmm. and like the characters are good, sure, but I don't want it to have anything to do with this <laughs> <laughs> this thing we've seen. Um, so, I think I think I'm sort of detecting what your first impressions uh, and your th- thoughts overall <laughs> on the movie might be um do please tell me more well do you know um there are certainly moments that i mm. enjoyed I-, I watched the trailer as soon as you revealed to me what we were going to be watching mm-hmm. and my heart sank a bit because i was like oh god I- this doesn't look like my cup of tea at all so i went into it really hoping it proved me wrong i was doing sort of mental gymnastics to try and find something positive to say about it. Sure. And there are, there's a lot in there. The guy, the, the little boy um, who plays the kid, he's great. And you know how I feel about children in yep. films. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm with you. I thought Madonna was really good. Mm-hmm. With the little she was given to do, I thought she was really good, actually. My main problem with the whole thing is it's so surface level. It's all about the aesthetic. There is no depth in here. And the little glimmers of depth that you're given mm-hmm. um, come from Madonna, actually. It come from, I would say, yeah, Madonna and um, uh, tr- uh, Tess Trueheart. Yeah. Oh, Glenn, God, Glenn what's Headley. her name? Glenn Headley. And she, she's, that, she's my favourite thing in the movie. Yeah, she's absolutely fantastic yeah. in it. Really like her. My main problem with the whole thing is I hate the way it looks. Oh, interesting. The colour palette, the prosthetics, I just think they really get in the way. Mm. That first scene where Flattop and the others kind of burst in on that card game and kill them all. As soon as they all stepped out of the cars with their prosthetics on, Mm -hmm. I was like, I hate this. I really hate it. (laughs) Okay, so Dick Tracy began as a comic strip. Mm -hmm. So this adaptation to the screen has to justify why this story deserves to be told as a film, not a comic strip. Sure. The medium has to has to make sense for the story that's trying to be told. So mm. why are you trying to make your actors look like comic strip characters? Mm. It, the prosthetics just totally get in the way. And I think it looks awful. I, think, I hate the colour scheme. Yeah, I kind of couldn't get past that. Mm. And I just didn't give a fuck. I didn't give a fuck if Big Boy Caprice took over the whole city. Sure. I didn't really see the evidence of what impact that would have on anyone or mm. why we should give a shit. And the other thing that really upset me, and I'm so sorry, I don't like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be a dick because mm. actually I do think she's really good in the film. She's very good in the film. Mm-hmm. But Madonna cannot sing those songs. <laughs> and she said as much herself um, in an interview she was like that's not what my my voice isn't like those songs yeah. I think Madonna's an amazing pop star and her voice suits the songs that she sings yeah. she can't sing Sondheim she's a pop star who has always known what her strengths are Yeah, and that's why she's so successful this is not her comfort zone no. I, I, you know I think 
sooner or later which is the song that um he that M sometime won the Oscar yeah. for. It's such a fantastic song yeah. and it would have been lovely to hear it sung really well. I could wang on, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to. What do you think, Ed? <laughs> I am a little warmer towards it than you are. Yeah. I actually do get on board with the prosthetics and the look of it. Sure. I admire it for its ambition and I admire it for those sort of technical aspects. Um, I like this idea of bringing a comic book to life yeah. and in, in that really sort of gaudy lurid over the top way so i i'm on board with the with the color palette and i'm on board with the 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 grotesque prosthetics um like flat top with that sort of triangular head i I think i'm sort of into that if i'm honest um and i love i like i like i really like all the 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 painted backdrops that sort of evoke um edward hopper paintings to me yeah. I'm sure I'm sure that was a huge yeah. influence. Where the film really falls down for me is in its narrative and uh, the actual characters, the storytelling. It it's so as you say there is no depth. It's so two-dimensional and possibly by design it is all so two-dimensional, but it long outstays its welcome. Um yeah. so yeah, I I I'm kind of I'm kind of into it for the first 20 minutes. I think it's like for me it's like uh like ordering an ice cream sundae. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you see it on the menu, you go, yeah, that looks great. Daft nonsense that's going to put a smile on my face. And it comes and you start eating and you go, ah, mm, yeah, lovely. And then after a little while, you start to feel sick and you just, you're desperate for some nutritional content. You're desperate for something savoury. And either you abandon the ice cream sundae or you see it through to the end and kind of regret it for the rest of yeah. the day. <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, there are. Ed, you're not allowed to make me laugh. Got... <laughs> there are, there are some serious narrative issues um, yeah. that, that I have with it. Like it just, it it's so repetitive, the story. Yeah. Like somebody gets kidnapped. Then there's a phone call luring somebody to somewhere else. And then there's a trap. And then it's and it just happens again and again and again. I think there's four or five kidnappings in this movie. And yeah, that's that's not the that's not the only repetitive element of the narrative. Should we yeah. uh, should we come on to the, the sort of plot yeah, and the story but, elements? Yeah, absolutely. I think I mean, well, like you say, it, it's so um basic, the mm-hmm. story. You know, d- hardboiled detective up against mobster. Yeah. The only kind I think the only sort of point of interest in it is the kind of nightclub singer who ends up sort of pulling the rug from under them. Again, I've been watching a lot of old movies. Yeah. And to come back again to this point about how tight the scripts are, how every line counts, how everything... And it, they all sound great and mean something. And it's it's great. There's a joy and an economy in, mm-hmm. the, in the scripts for these kind of amazing old noir films. And so much character. This has none of that. No. Like... They could be saying anything. Yep. Too much of the focus of this is is given to the aesthetic, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I absolutely understand why it would appeal. And certainly there are moments where I thought, actually, yeah, no, do you know what? That looks great. Like that as a shot looks yeah. great. And it is exactly like you said, it's that kind of Edward Hopper thing. Tess and her world and the kind of real world, I suppose, is fine. But the world of the gangsters and the mobsters mm. is uh, I, I just... It's horrible. I feel like they they don't know how to combine those two worlds satisfactorily. And it's weird because it opens with the kid witnessing that 
Gangland Massacre. And I don't know if you felt like I did, like, oh, he's going to be a witness and they're going to, the, the gang's going to be trying to track him down. And that, it just, it went nowhere. No, Absolutely nowhere. Completely, yeah. It was like, oh, that's just sort of nothing. He's just, he's yeah. witnessed that. He's like, witnessed it, it, but... That was the thing that boggled my mind. Yeah, he ends mm. up with Dick Tracy for some, because of, he because he um, steals someone's watch. It's like completely unrelated. Completely unrelated. It would surely have been quite an easy fix in the screenplay to, yeah, yeah to actually draw those worlds together. But instead, yeah, the yeah. only, the only way they have to draw the worlds together is through the medium of kidnappings. Yeah, Either yeah. kidnapping Dick Tracy, uh, kidnapping Tess Trueheart. And one of the things that really bothered me in it was the kind of fairly typical thing of like, you know, there's a, he, he's got a good woman and he wants to keep hold of her and but he's not willing to commit and all this stuff. And at the end, I was so disappointed that there was no like resolution to that problem. He gave her a ring, but he hasn't made any effort to address his work-life balance. No. Or prove to her that it will be better for her. And I just thought, God, what a shit thing for Tess. Like, what a shit life. If stories Uh, are about change, nothing has changed by the end of this No, nothing has changed. At all. No. Like, pointedly so. And I I don't know if that's a sort of an intentional comment on these comic strips where nothing changes. These characters are forever in stasis. Although, in the comics, I believe he, uh, Dick Tracy does marry Tess Trueheart. Yeah. So it, it does develop in the comics. So I don't. Yeah. Well, I don't know. The kind of shiny bauble of distraction that the um, production design provides mm-hmm. cannot sustain a lack of story throughout an entire hour forty-five film. I just didn't give a fuck. And actually, um, we got to, we got to the end where they're in that kind of. Are they in a clock tower? Yes. Or, or like the or dam like or something. I, I don't know. There's a lot of cogs going round. There's loads of cogs for some reason. I mean, again, just trying to desperately speed the end of Batman. And I was just like, come on. Wrap it up, come on. Well, they even you know. they they even uh, kill Al Pacino in sort of a similar way to how the Joker dies at the end of Batman, fall into his yeah, death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although uh, at the end of Batman, it's much more of a battle and um, much more interesting well, yeah, ending, rather than just shoving him over a bit of fencing. Kind of just like we don't want this um, denouement to go on for longer than it needs to. Like, yeah. how can we kill him? I know. Let's throw him off something. Also, because I guess they kind of they don't want to make Dick Tracy a killer, so the villain has to fall because mm. the hero has to be kind of uh, have his hands clean but in they, that respect they do exactly that in batman like yeah. batman batman doesn't kill the joker not directly he's trying to hold anyway. up, he's trying to haul him back up isn't he no he's he's, he's hanging on to the mace yeah he's hanging on to the he's hanging on to the so joker's on the helicopter and um yeah. batman attaches a, a line to the joker's leg and a gargoyle which then yeah drops a, a, a ends up making him plummet to his doom such a wonderful ending It begs the question of what the purpose of the film is. Who is this film for? Is it to deliver to fans of Dick Tracy exactly what they mm-hmm. expect? Is it to, like, kind of appeal to a bigger audience? Like, what? I, I, I kind of couldn't work out who this film That's is for. That's a good question. Because, yeah, when you look at Tim Burton's Batman, that had a very clear audience in mind, and it was teenagers yeah whereas this is i think aimed at a slightly younger crowd but at the same time there is some of the darkness that i think would be off-putting for that younger crowd like when like in that opening scene when the cat gets killed that's really horrible i was yeah. like oh that was yeah. yeah really jarred with me that did yeah so I, I i don't i don't know who it's for i really don't also the kind of the sort of sexiness of um breathless oh, yeah, Mahoney. yeah full full nips out. It, full <laughs> nips but also the kind of the, that scene where she comes to see him in his office and she's like all over mm-hmm. the desk i didn't get why that character would fall in love with 
with Dick Tracy. Mm -hmm. I understand why that character would want to try and manipulate and use Dick Tracy to get her out of the situation that she's in with the mob. But that scene where they're on the docks together and she's like, it's very sincere. Yeah, it's unjustified in the plot. So I sort of err on the side of she is manipulating him or trying to manipulate him. And she's just that good an actor. That's that that that's the only thing that makes sense to me. I think it's it's one of these things where you know, obviously it's it's a heightened mm. world because it's a comic book yeah. story. So everything is heightened. The emotions are heightened. The you know the aesthetics and the stakes all have to be mm. heightened. Apart from in this film, there are no stakes. Couldn't give a shit. Right. And none of the heightened emotions are earned. And actually, the most kind of realistic and like, the, and for me, the bit of the film that worked best was Tessa's kind of heartbreak over mm-hmm. Dick Tracy and that bit where she goes to her mum's house yeah. and her mum is telling her what to do and all yeah. of this. And it's like, yeah, okay, this is a real person have with real human feelings, yeah. and everything else, it it just none of none of it was earned. But yeah, let's actually let's let's chat about Tess, um, because as as I said, she's my yeah. favourite thing in the movie. I think Glenn Headley's terrific in this. She's like, I just I immediately like her as soon as she's there. She's the only likable. Um, the, the kid, I suppose, he kind of. Are supposed to like by default, but she she's the only person who I see and I go, yes, I like you. I absolutely understand why you've been cast in this role. She also has the best line in the film. Uh, so when she's there in the diner with the kid, yeah, she <laughs> so yeah, the kid the kid steals her money, and she doesn't even she doesn't even look at him. She just goes, "Do you like a broken arm?" He goes, "I don't like dames." She goes, "Good, me neither." <laughs> Which yeah, that made me laugh. It's it's it's, yeah, it's yeah. the best line in the film, and it, because it actually it says a lot about her as a character as well, and her performance of it. it, it like yeah, so, something has surprised me. There's some depth here. There's a character who's not just true of heart. You know what I mean? She is a real yeah. person. She's a real sass. person with opinions and an attitude and her own life mm-hmm. and stuff that's happening. I really like that kind of, um, the in the dialogue, that sort of repeated conversation that she has with Dick Tracy, where he's like, um, we both like living alone. And she's like, yeah, that's something mm-hmm. we have in common. And it's this kind of, this picture that she's got her own stuff going on. In a way, I would love to see a whole film with Tess at the centre where Dick Tracy just keeps popping up and it's like, you get to see her opinion yeah. about all the stuff that's going on rather than just occasionally she gets to babysit yeah. <laughs> or tend a wound or get kidnapped to provide motivation you know it's yeah. just yeah i don't really get why she's into dick at all no i don't get it at all see this is the thing right at the start of the film i had so mm. much hope and there were things that i was like good thank goodness yeah. there's going to be stuff in here that i like i really enjoyed the opening shot where you, it's his kind of it pans yeah. it's got his watch and the radio and the thing and it's kind of and his hat's there and he takes his hat off it's like a really cool it looks really yeah. good and that scene in the opera and stuff it's like oh yeah this is cool yeah. i like this but there weren't enough of those moments to like i say sustain no, me um, yeah no that that opening shot's terrific because you just get immediately all that iconography of of dick tracy Mm. and yeah i've never been a particular fan of dick tracy but i know of that iconography and i know that if i was somebody who was really into dick tracy getting all that immediately i i would have been very very excited yeah i would have been very grateful that they'd kind of reassured me that they were gonna fulfill my fan requirements you know let's let's talk about dick what do you think (laughs) well 
what do you think of him as a character and what do you think of Beatty's performance as that character? So we've said that Warren Beatty's not particularly charismatic in this role. Bit of a He's just sort of there. That being said, there is something about his performance of Dick that I find kind of endearingly dorky. There's, yeah. there's a sort of awkwardness to him in all the physical stuff that he does, as well as like in those scenes where it's obviously supposed to be awkward but stuff like like when he when he jumps onto the lamppost and slides down it's just so sort of clumsy and when he's jumping away from the uh, from the building that's blowing up it's just a little bit awkward and clumsy and i I kind of yeah i kind of like that that sort of humanizing of the character because you think dick tracy this just lantern jawed action man hero and you don't imagine him yeah. bumbling about. Interestingly, uh, the, the more I've thought about it since you mentioned it, I think Clint Eastwood would have been great. I, th- I okay. think, yeah, I think Clint Eastwood would have been really good. I mean, he'd run into the same criticism that Beatty did of being too old. But I, but I think if he had played mm-hmm. it totally mm-hmm. straight with really mm-hmm. high stakes, that could have been hilarious. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. If he'd come in doing Clint Eastwood, because you say you, you mentioned him doing things that you require a sense of humour. I think Clint mm. Eastwood is funny, and I, th- mm. I think I think Clint yeah, Eastwood okay. is funny when he's the more serious he is, the funnier he is. Have you yeah. seen uh, Have you seen Gran Torino? I haven't seen Gran Torino. I mean, the the, the character is uh, what the kids like to refer to as problematic. Um, but okay. yeah, he's this cantankerous old man, uh, and just yeah. the way he the way he looks at people is funny. It just is um, yeah. with that sort of like a, like a Rottweiler. And yeah, as as for Warren Beatty, I don't really have much else to say about him other than I quite like the sort of goofy humanising aspects. I'm not entirely sure they're intentional, if I'm honest. I I get the feeling that this is a project where his attention was split. Mm between producing, directing, acting, and all of those things suffered as a result. He, d- I don't think he managed to do a good job on any sure. of it. I think he's just sort of there, which is a shame because actually you go to see a Dick Tracy film, I would want Dick Tracy to be the most compelling character as my lead and my hero. And actually it meant that some of the stuff he does that you... that. Uh, that is like his flaw. Mm-hmm. So the way he treats Tess, mm-hmm. the way he allows himself to be up to a point seduced by Breathless, yep. uh, like that, I'm just like, oh, you, I don't like uh, I don't like mm-hmm. you very much because you've not got any charm to show me that these things that are happening are just flaws in your character. For a detective who's taking on the mob single-handed, mm-hmm. unbelievably passive <laughs> in this film, the whole way through. Yeah, yeah except you know? in that one montage. Well, I mean, we'll talk about the montages. Uh, I have opinions. Oh, God, yeah. yeah, there's that one montage of him taking on the mob. And there you see him as sort of action man taking on the mob. But all the rest of the time, yeah, completely passive. But is but is rescued by other mm-hmm. people. You know, like when um, they strap him to that chair in the basement of Tessa's apartment building and it's going to yeah. blow. The kid, is, the kid rescues yeah. him. He sort of isn't a very good detective. No, he reminded me, particularly in that moment, he reminded me of Inspector Gadget. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this thing. sort of hapless thing. The one good thing that they do, like the one thing that they do, the montage where Dick Tracy is succeeding in taking on the mob, is they bug a light fitting. And then the reason that that's discovered is because his kind of goofy police yeah. mate who's making notes drops his coffee down the hole and the coffee's dripping down on them. There's no satisfying no. police work. Again, I appreciate it's kind of supposed to be a cartoon. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they can do it. You know, I'm not expecting it to be Zodiac. No. But the, the mystery or the crime, the kind of story that's got the meat mm. in it to do with Dick Tracy doing his job and taking on the bad guy. There's no meat no. to it. I, I would like to be surprised at some point by something that happens. 
Yes. I have to say, I was surprised that it was Breathless and um, who was the man with uh, no Yes. That surprised me because I thought it was a man with no face because of the prosthetics. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is a world in which a man could have yeah. no face. And that's that. That's actually, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's the clever thing that the that the film does is that misdirection. Because yeah. you do think, oh, it must be a man without a face because in this world of grotesque faces, then yeah, that absolutely is a thing that exists. Yeah. So actually, I I, I rather like that. It's a it's a really good twist. I like that twist. It was pleasing. Should we talk about Breathless? Yeah, let's talk about Breathless. I would like to, uh, ding, 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 mm. put her name up mm-hmm. for consideration to the Spice of Lovejoy character name Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely fair enough. Uh, only one slight issue is that it's not a creation of the film itself. It's a, a name from the source material. However, it is a terrific name. So I think... But also though, is it... I mean, it's a terrific name, but it's a terrific name in a film that has got slightly daft names. Like Titanic, Spicer Lovejoy is a ludicrous name for a character in a kind of what is supposed to be a sort of real life situation. Whereas Breathless Mahoney is a slightly daft name in a daft film. So does it, should it be disqualified on that count? Um, I don't know. I sort of don't want to disqualify the first nominee. I know, um. but should, I mean, what do we do? I mean, we, we can always, um, she can have been submitted for consideration and we can make a choice about it later. Mm-hmm. Yes, let's make a choice about it at the end of our discussion. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. See how we feel about Breathless. Uh, yeah. Do you feel like I do that Madonna in this movie suffers a little bit from Elvis Presley syndrome? So what I mean by that um, is Elvis Presley, when he was making movies in his younger years, all he wanted to do in those movies was act. He didn't want to do the songs. Mm. But the studios and Colonel Tom Parker were like, no, you're Elvis Presley. You have to sing some songs in this movie. I feel like this movie goes, we've got Madonna. She's singing songs. We've also got Stephen Sondheim. We're doing songs. There's songs, whether whether they're necessary or not, whether they help the plot move forward or not, whether they do anything other than take up time or not. Mm. We have these songs and they're damn well going to happen. Um, it's probably yeah. a good moment to talk about the montages as well, because I think almost all of the montages, if not all of them, are covered by Madonna singing these Sondheim songs. To me, the montages go on too long and they don't yep. move things on in an interesting way and the the last one where it's you know the uh, the the money is piling up for big boy caprice and is think it's not like the montage in scarface that tells the same story yeah. it's just so prosaic so blah it moves the story on a bit but it takes two and a half minutes of my time it's and- very lazy because it's kind of them saying we need you to understand that the plot has progressed but we can't be asked to show you how that happens yeah. so here's a montage yeah exactly And what you were saying about Madonna being interviewed about the songs in this sort of made me think, well, maybe she was feeling similarly to Elvis when making it. Actually, because her performance as an actor, as Breathless, is terrific. And if we had one song, if we had that one song that that won the Oscar and that was all, I I would say, okay, this is great. This is a justified singing performance. Fab. But it's over and over and over and over and over and over again. And actually, what I think she wants to be doing and what she does really well is focus on the character and the performance. Because I think, uh, yeah, I think she's yeah. really great in this. In a, in, a, in a film where all of the kind of acting, like everything else, is very surface mm-hmm. level, I think actually both uh, Madonna and um, Glenn Headley in this offer depth. Yeah. Uh, it's such a relief. Yeah. Uh, when, whenever they're on screen, you're like, oh, thank God, yeah. someone's going to give me something to actually watch here. Yeah, you know? as I was saying, that sort of nutritional content. <laughs> 
Yeah, nutritional content. But um, I mean, also, I mean, the way that she's shot and the costume design mm. um, for her character, she looks amazing. And the way her character is coded harkens back to kind of the noir element of this. It's sort of a cartoon version of a noir film. Oh, absolutely. But this is like, oh no, this is sort of leaning more towards a kind of spoof of a noir yeah. rather than a kind of comic book version because I do think they are different. Because I was looking at this and I was like, is this spoofing noir? Is it even paying homage it's, to it? And I don't think it is. It's not about noir, it's about comics. Yeah, to my mind, it's it's a pastiche more than a spoof because yeah. I think a, a, a spoof takes the piss out of the form, doesn't it? It's making yeah. fun of the form, whereas a pastiche just goes, this is what the form is. Here you go. But I do feel a bit like this film is is poking fun. I think because of the design and the like, it doesn't feel entirely warm to me. I I don't I don't think it's got enough wit about it to be poking fun. To me, right. to me, it's it's a lot blander. Actually, it's a straight up, very ambitious attempt to bring a comic book to life on the screen in a noir mm. style. I don't see the elements of mockery. Yeah, okay, fair enough. The whole film feels cold. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I I agree with that. Part of it is that kind of Edward Hopper colour palette. I think there's only seven colours used in the film. Can we talk about the scene Mm. where Al Pacino is, like, making them rehearse? Oh, my God. Because it seems to me, I sort of wrote down in my notes at that point, like, big boy Caprice, Mm -hmm. his ambition in life is to be, like, a choreographer of a fairly small bar. That's what he wants. More than anything. Seems to be it, yeah. And he has killed people to do this. Yes. For some reason, this nightclub is the centre of gangland activity. There's gambling goes on there. We know that. And I I, I do quite like the design elements of when the police do the raid and they yeah, sort of yeah. flipping the chips over to be... Um, and, oh, you know, cigarettes, yeah, yeah. Cigarettes it was, yes. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and there's uh, bits of set revolving to hide tables yeah. and stuff. Although that was pretty cool. But like, I don't, I don't get a sense that there's really anything worth fighting for here. Coming to it completely blind, you've got to fill in a lot of gaps from your own knowledge about the time period that it's mm-hmm. sort of supposed to be set in yeah. because okay is gambling illegal in this world we don't find that out until they do a raid mm. and they're hiding the fact that there's gambling uh, ga- gambling laws are quite interesting in the states uh, yeah it's because it is actually uh, illegal in most places i think i uh, but you know if i don't know that oh, yeah, if yeah. I, and also because this film is presented as a kind of fantastical film yeah. it's that thing we were talking about last week if you need to be really clear with your audience what the rules are and if you introduce a plot point what two-thirds of the way through mm-hmm. that gambling is illegal and that's why they're doing the raid then i'm a bit like what Oh, okay. It's just a bit, it's sloppy. I don't think it knows really clearly what story it's telling us. Yeah, I I, I don't think we can talk about Breathless without uh, talking about uh, Mandy Patinkin. Uh, 88 Keys, yeah. um, who actually is a, a sort of, a, he's another element of humanity, actually, Mandy Patinkin brings yeah. to the film um, in all this sort of lurid cartoon gaudiness. I think there is some depth to Patinkin's performance. Definitely, I agree. That, um, you know, when they do their duet, Madonna and Mandy, yeah. Patinkin, are, they're at, at the piano doing, a, doing one of the sort of Sondheim songs as a duet. And the way he's looking at her, just in that moment, he doesn't have any dialogue. He's just the way he's looking at her. And you're like, okay, there is a plot here. There mm-hmm. is a real point of interest. This yeah. is like a really lovely pin on my graph of like what is happening 
in this world, who are these people? Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. No, there was something else to explore there in, you know, maybe 88 Keys is a little bit in love with Breathless. You yeah. Know what I mean? Um, I think he is but then there's because Breathless as um, I keep saying the man with no face but actually there is a character name it's The Blank yes Um, so The Blank hires Mandy Patinkin 88 Keys sorry but I think that there is a version of this story where Breathless and 88 Keys are in it together kind of for love yeah um, you know and that is so much more interesting that would make much more sense to me rather than it's it's another anonymous phone call isn't it uh, Patinkin gets a phone call and is told to go to a place it's a device that they use again and again but that's 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 for the plot it's because it's because they need us to see the man with no face getting involved um, and it's like well Uh, It just, it feels like... lazy, lazy plotting. It's so lazy. You're so... Yeah, you're exactly right. The word is lazy. Which is weird because for a film that is so much Mm -hmm. to look at, there is so much going on in its production design. Yeah. It's so paper thin in every other element, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. And I I keep just sort of thinking that that paper thin quality to the story and, and the characters is... It's kind of by design, but it, yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> but if if they were going to do that, they should have had a lot more fun yeah. with everything else. They should have really leaned into the cartoon. You know, you were saying before about that shot where um, Warren Beatty jumps onto the lamppost mm-hmm. and the lamppost kind of wobbles all over the place. Yeah. The whole film should have been like that. And kind of like in, um, not Bob Geldof, <laughs> God, Bob Hoskins goes <laughs> to... Um, Toontown in Who, yeah. um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. That kind of manipulation of the human body in that respect to make them into cartoons. Yeah. That would have been loads of fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, as, as you see in Roger Rabbit. Yeah, that would have been so much exactly. fun. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think I think there's a real sort of catastrophic failure of imagination. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't go to those places strongly enough. Um, it just sort of relies on we've created this world and... It looks like this, but then yes. they just they don't they don't go anywhere with it. There's there is that one moment actually where um where he rescues the kid from the abusive guy in the shack, and they yeah. have the fight in the shack, and the shack is just rocking from side to side to side to side. Yeah, yeah. That I really like. They yeah. There could have been more of that. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Just more over the top elements in the direction. Yeah. Yeah. If if you're not going to put any effort into the plot and the characters, you know, your effort's got to go somewhere. And it's like, it's like they were like, look, we've got, we're only using seven colours and there's loads of prosthetics. It's like, okay, but that's only interesting for the first sort of couple of minutes that you're looking at it. Mm. Yeah. What what else, you know? Should we talk about Pacino? I think we have to, don't we? Yeah. What's he doing? Phoning it in. That's what I'd say. I I, I don't know. That's the, yeah, I don't know. That's. That's the expression that I'd use. He's just—he's just all over the shop. He's absolutely all over the shop. I, at this point, he hadn't won an Oscar. Um, that was still to come in uh, in a couple of years. I think *Sense of a Woman*. I can't remember what year *Sense of a Woman* came out. No, oh, I thought *Sense of a Woman*. I feel like it's like '94 or something. Possibly. Like that. I just—I'll just very quickly have a look because yeah, I'm sh- yeah '92 actually. So oh okay. Yeah '92. He. Uh, did Scent of a Woman and finally won that Oscar that he was searching for. And I think at at this point in his career, I think he was like, I've really got to do something crazy to maybe get some attention. Because this is 
the point of his career where he does go crazy. I mean, Scent of a Woman, he's renowned for being kind of over the top in that, but it's sort of dialed back from this, which is, I mean, this performance is dialed up somewhat from Scarface, which is pretty mad and over the top. But there's no light in his eyes. No. It's like like he's following the same beats Mm -hmm. and being as loud um, and all of those things, but it is so hollow. And again, I think this is one of the reasons why I think the prosthetics were a terrible idea Mm. because it's like he's hiding behind the prosthetics and all he's doing is shouting. Oscar nominated Gould. Oscar nominated performance. (laughs) I mean, it must have been a very, very dry year. If I've not said this yet on the podcast, I know we talk about the Oscars every week because it's an interesting part of the context um, to all of these films. But the Oscars are fucking stupid. Oh, absolutely stupid. They don't and mean I, anything. I say that in full safety of knowing that nobody is ever going to give me one or offer me one. You know what I mean? It's The Oscars are fucking stupid. They're not the stupidest award. No, absolutely not. First of all, the Oscars are not a level playing field. They are not a true mark of quality or talent. Because in order to be considered for an award, you have to have an unbelievable amount of money. Mm -hmm. Be that yourself as an individual or yourself, or um, kind of backed by the production that you've Mm -hmm. been involved with. They have to get behind you. And that's a marketing exercise. The reason they'll get behind you is so that they get to sell more tickets to the film right the best the best description i've ever heard of the oscars mm. is uh, from the director sam mendes okay who um was he said you know awards are very nice and i think it was a um it was like um have you got any advice for up and coming directors or people who might want to break into the film industry as mm. a director and he said the most important thing for you to remember is that the oscars is a tv show <laughs> yes and I, do, and I think that's a perfect way of putting it. That doesn't mean that the people who win Oscars don't deserve them, often. Oh, yeah. I was absolutely delighted when Paul Mascal was nominated for his role in After uh-huh, Sun, because sure. that is a superb film. I don't. I personally don't think that um, Jamie Lee Curtis deserved her Oscar for her work in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, I think that she... Yeah. But I definitely think she deserves to have won an award at some point in her career. Sometimes. Because she's great. Sometimes I feel like, particularly with the supporting actor and supporting actress awards, I feel like they're given to somebody who, yeah, we just we haven't given you one yet. So, yeah, like that's that's Judy Dench um, yeah. winning for uh, Shakespeare in Love when she was yeah. on screen for about five minutes. Yeah, it was. This is nominally for your work in Shakespeare in Love, but really it's just for everything else you've done because it's kind of for your body of work. And sorry. <laughs> yeah and a bit like Leonardo DiCaprio with his win for The Revenant sure in which he's good yeah but it's not better than his other roles no necessarily no, and there are other actors in that film who deliver equally good performances you know it's just I, I don't know that it, yeah. it, it's an interesting thing to talk about the Oscars yeah. it is and I, I feel like Pacino is nominated here for, for that very same reason that kind of uh we haven't given you one yet. Yeah, and we feel a bit bad about it. Yeah, and you're in this movie quite a lot and you're quite eye-catching in it and maybe people will want to reward that. I'm just looking at who else was nominated. Uh, I can tell you who won. Who won? That was Goodfellas that year, so it was um, Joe Pesci. Ah, okay. Yeah, Pacino was up against yeah Pesci, who won for Goodfellas. Uh, Bruce Davison for Longtime Companion, which I don't know that at all. Andy Garcia for his work on The Godfather Part 3. And uh, Graham Greene 
uh, in Dances with Wolves because um, okay. that was the year that Dances with Wolves won everything. It's interesting because that was the year Dances with Wolves did really well. It's one of those best pictures that I think doesn't live in the consciousness as strongly as what it beat. Um, right. So, yeah, Dances with Wolves beat uh, Goodfellas. It also beat Ghost, which I would say um, yeah. lives in the consciousness more than Dances with Wolves does. But I think um, Ghost was the highest grossing film that year. Was it? I think so. Good Lord. Yeah, no, Ghost took 505.7 million at the box office. My stepmom tells a really good story about um, going to see Ghost at the cinema. Oh, yeah. And her sister had been to see Ghost at the cinema already. And there was a particular moment where my stepmom's sister reached into her bag and got out several rolls of toilet paper and just started passing them around. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> everyone was crying. <laughs> and because she'd already seen it, she knew... <laughs> she knew that she knew that people were going to be in tears, so she'd brought loads of toilet roll. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? I love that story. Yeah. I've never seen Ghost. Ghost is one of those films that I feel like I've seen because it's so the image imagery in it is so kind of entrenched. Yeah. You know, um, I'm exactly I've never the actually same. Watched it. I'm exactly the same. I've I've not seen it, but I feel like I have in that. Same yeah, way. yeah. Have we got anything else to say about Pacino before we move on? No, I mean I will just say again. I think that the prosthetics get in the way. It does reduce expressivity well none of their faces move but otherwise i mean pacino you know he's fine I, I think in terms of in terms of the rest of the film he is serving the function he needs to as kind of goonish big bad mobster guy but i mean he's just he's just a man he just wants to he just wants to choreograph a dance routine ed that's all he wants the, the one bit of depth really to the character is that he's got little man syndrome if 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 you can call that depth i mean that's that's all you can really say about the character um, I, I don't know if i'd call that depth no it is i mean i know pacino's not the tallest actor in the world but he, he does look in this significantly shorter than everybody he's surrounded by there's something in his physicality which is quite cool yeah i mean he's very hunched over and they have really extended out his back into yeah. a kind of hunchback almost he's really stooping and looking up at everybody all the time i don't know i just he wasn't my least favorite thing about the film what was your least favorite thing about the film was it the prosthetics generally the look of it Pros the prosthetics the prosthetics were my least favorite mm. thing the look of it I personally didn't like it, but I appreciate what they were trying to do. I think they could have, I think they should have pulled it back a little bit. I think they could have done the same thing and been subtle. It felt like they were going, look how clever we've been. Yeah, they we've do only sort of... used seven colours. Like... <laughs> yeah, they do sort of vomit that colour palette onto the screen at you, don't they? It just, just spew out. What about you? What's your least favourite thing about the film? The laziness of the screenplay is is my big, big issue. The Yeah, the endless recurring plot elements, the montages that go on forever and don't really tell you very much. Just Yeah, just the. I think the screenplay is my least favourite element. I get the feeling that um, your opinion of the film hasn't changed in the com during the conversation or um, have, have you have I persuaded you that the um the design is an abomination and <laughs> no you've not persuaded me <laughs> you've not persuaded me of that because I still ad I still admire it for what it was attempting to do and how close it gets to achieving that specific stated aim so if yeah, I take yeah. the design on its own terms using those that limited palette that you would get in a comic book trying to translate the the gaudy over the top imagery of the comic books which yeah the ca the character designs for Dick Tracy's villains are like this they are yeah like these misshapen grotesques so yeah i when i take it on its own terms 
for what it's trying to achieve, I do still admire it for how close it gets to realising that ambition. But yeah, I am absolutely sympathetic to... This is the thing. I'm not, I'm not against prosthetics. No. As a, as a rule, I think that they aren't well done in this. Oscar winning, Gould. Oscar winning. Oh, well, I, I'm wrong then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sort of don't have anything else to say about Dick Tracy, really. No, I know, me too. I know, me too. We've chatted for longer than I thought we'd manage, actually, on this. I know. Well, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because you kind of, when you want to start unpicking. Like, when I got to the end of it, mm-hmm. and um, I was like, I really didn't enjoy that. And I was trying really hard to think of the clever explanation for why I didn't enjoy it. But the truth is, I just didn't like it. I didn't like the way it looked. I didn't like the cut of its jib. It's actually no no deeper than that, really. It, mm. I didn't give a shit about the story it was trying to tell me, and I didn't like the way it looked while it was doing it. Do you feel like if the story had been more compelling, it might have brought you along? Maybe. It might have done. But the bit of the story in the world that I was interested in wasn't hampered by the prosthetics and stuff. Sure. So it, I feel like I would have enjoyed those aspects more, but I would still have been bothered by the... Do you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. And actually, to be honest, I think if Dick Tracy had been more interesting, I probably would have cared more. Mm-hmm. But all of it just feels like not enough. Has, has your opinion changed at all over the course of a conversation? I suspect it's not. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> uh, would you recommend this film to anyone, Ed? Only as... Uh, sort of cinematic curio because I don't think there's any other film quite like it no I wouldn't recommend anybody watch it no I would I would show people stills from it as a point of interest but I would never recommend anybody sit down and watch it Are you ready? Are you ready to play? Oh, I think I probably am. Yeah. So, Ed, um first of all, I'd like to hear what you would have chosen as the next film to watch from Dick Tracy? Well, interestingly, my choice has changed over the course of our conversation. Interesting. I was pulling in two different directions on this question. So I'm going to tell you first what the film was that I was going to say. I thought it would be cool to just take that opening scene of the Gangland Massacre, clearly inspired by the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, um, which, if you don't know, I'm sure there are true crime podcasts that will talk about that. Uh, It was also adapted uh, into a brilliant film. But there is a film that I love that opens with a gangland massacre clearly inspired by the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And that film is Some Like It Hot. Oh, my goodness. And that that all week has been the film that I was like... Yeah, that's my choice. That's my choice. Well, when we discussed... um, Oh, it was when we were discussing a film that we didn't cover, but I watched The Vikings. Mm. We were talking about how um, one day we were going to have to watch some Like It Hot so we could talk about the amazing leg acting of Tony Curtis. But as I say, my choice has changed over the course of this conversation because the other direction I wanted to go was uh, more in a sort of uh, a, a design and ambition uh, sort of vein. And now I want I want that again. I want to see a comic book brought to life as a comic book in all these design terms, but done really, really well. And for that, I would choose Robert Rodriguez's Sin City. Yeah. Do you know, so many times as we were talking, I wanted to bring up Sin City mm-hmm. as an example of it being done well. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's what I would like now, having had this conversation. Um, I may indeed yeah. end up watching it at some point this week anyway. I was thinking, actually, tonight might be the night because that is I haven't chosen that. No, I didn't think you would. I know what I, I know what I think you might have chosen. Do you? Yeah, possibly, possibly. Tell me more. <laughs> well, I suspect 
that you might have followed your heart, gone with a film that I know you really love, followed Glenn Headley and put the cork on the fork and watched uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Amazing. Because <laughs> I know you Why love it. Why is the cork on the fork? <laughs> uh, oh, it's such a good film. We, did we go and see the musical of that together? We did, yeah. Yes, with, with um, Robert Lindsay. Robert Lindsay. And, and Rufus, Rufus Hound. Hound. Wasn't it, yeah. Uh, it was quite good. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. That isn't what I've gone for. No. What have you gone for? I've gone for... Well, um, do you know, I went with my first thought. I haven't gone through cast and crew. I haven't gone thematic. I haven't done anything like that. I've just done pure and simple word association. Right, okay. <laughs> um, so if I were to ask you, Ed, what you think the key design features of Dick Tracy are, what would you say? Prosthetics. I don't, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Shall I put you out of your misery? Yeah, put me out of my misery. I've got no idea. Well, um, we're going to watch the 1998 um, John Travolta film, Primary Colours. Oh, wow. I've not seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Neither have I. I appreciate that's a little bit odd. Mm. Um, but I just, I was like, I can't. I j- it was the first thing that popped into my head. Yeah. And I was like, actually, yeah. It, it took me not? a moment to make the link in my head and work out what you were talking about. But yes, yes, primary colours is the key design feature of Dick Tracy. <laughs> primary colours. So yeah, um, primary colours, it's 1998 and it is available on BBC iPlayer. Um, and when I checked its expiry date, it's on there for over a year. So we've got Perfect. plenty of time to watch it and you can watch it for free uh, on the BBC. And yeah, please do get in touch and let us know what you would have chosen after Dick Tracy. Yeah. Uh, and if you have watched Dick Tracy, let us know what you think. Um, do you disagree? Do you think it is a masterpiece? Do you think Do you think that the prosthetics add an enormous amount of depth to this <laughs> complex plot? <laughs> um, Ed, um, what have you got coming up this week? What are you What are you watching? Uh, well, pretty much as soon as we're done, I'm gonna sit down and watch the last episode of Succession. Ah, uh, yes. Because I've managed to go the last. Uh, so we're recording this on Wednesday. I believe the finale aired on Sunday, so I've gone the last two and a half, three days without getting any spoilers. Well but done. Well done, me. It has meant really well avoiding. Done. Yeah, it has meant avoiding really everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to do that immediately. As far as films are concerned, yeah, as I said, I was going to go watch Bo is Afraid tomorrow. Um, I'd also like to fit in... Oh, what's it called? There's a, a, a Second World War film that's just come out. Oh, is it um, Sisu? Is it the one about the the bloke with the gold? Yeah, Sisu, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I really fancy that. I'm really keen on seeing. So I may be able to fit that in this afternoon. That possibly. would be lovely. So I think all that remains is for us to say thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Unbreakable Movie Chain. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And uh, feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. That's uh, You can do that on social media. Just look up Movie Chain and uh, you can email us on moviechain at outlook.com. Bye. 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 Bye-bye. <laughs>